This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for an audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone by J.K. Rowling because, come on, it's Harry freaking Potter. Honestly, you don't need me to sell you this book, but if you're one of the six people on Earth who haven't read it already, you probably should, if for no other reason than so that you get the references. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 125, The Fall of the Samurai, part 9. As our rather complex overview of Shishi politics last week might have made clear to you, we're about to jump into one of the most complicated parts of our story. The early 1860s have a lot of moving parts. Today, we're going to dive on in headfirst and try to bring some order to the madness. First, let's head back to Edo for a bit. We last left the capital city of the Tokugawa reeling from the death of Inaosuke, who was struck down by assassins no more than a few yards from the walls of the shogun's palace itself. In the immediate aftermath of Ii's death, the Tokugawa Bakufu lacked any real leadership. Its other high officials were generally lazy or inept, or had been chosen for their lack of initiative. As a result, Tokugawa policy generally drifted for the next two years. By 1862, however, there was a firm hand back on the rudder, and it came from a surprising corner. Leadership in the Bakufu fell not to the young shogun Tokugawa Iemochi, who was, at this point, all of 16, and, like his cousin and predecessor, generally a rather unhealthy and sickly man. Iemochi compounded that problem, by the way, by becoming an adherent of a rather rigorous sect of Buddhism, which allowed him little other than polished rice to eat, a sure path to nutritional deficiency and disease in an age before enriched rice. Instead, power fell to the man who had lost the battle for the job of shogun, 24-year-old Tokugawa Yoshinobu. Yoshinobu, remember, had been put forward as a candidate for shogun by those Tozama in Shimpan Daimyo, opposed to the faction of Fudai Daimyo led by Inaosuke, who had dominated the central government. Yoshinobu's supporters felt that as the older candidate, and the biological son of his firebrand father, Tokugawa Nariaki, who had constantly fought the central government and Inaosuke, Yoshinobu represented their best chance to get their feet in the door of government. After Inaosuke rose to the rank of Tairo, Yoshinobu, along with his supporters, was placed under house arrest. Yoshinobu's biological father, Tokugawa Nariaki, died shortly after being released from house arrest. But Yoshinobu was too healthy to die suddenly like his father, and, as a direct Tokugawa relative, was too highborn for Ii to execute. 
As a result, Yoshinobu survived to the end of Inosuke's reign as Tyro, and was released from house arrest and restored to his position as head of one of the branch families of the Tokugawa. Yoshinobu was, by all accounts, bright, driven, and charismatic. He quickly established himself as one of the best advisors available to young shogun Iemochi, and in 1862, Yoshinobu arranged to be named the young shogun's guardian, cementing his personal influence over the young and sickly Iemochi. Tokugawa Yoshinobu may have lost out on the competition for the role of shogun in 1858, but only four years later he was, if not the shogun himself, at least the man pulling the shogun's strings. Still, Yoshinobu's power was not absolute, Unlike Inosuke, he was resolutely opposed by factions within the Bakufu, who disliked him for his ties to groups that had opposed central government policy. Yoshinobu was not an absolute ruler. He had a lot of influence in guiding policy, but did not run the country unchallenged. So what were his policies in office? First, and interestingly, he did not pursue the policies of his biological father, Tokugawa Nariaki. Remember, Nariaki had advocated for the total rejection of treaties with the West, even if the result was immediate war. Yoshinobu was not so radical. Partially, this is because Yoshinobu was intrigued by Western technology to a degree that his father never really was. For example, Yoshinobu posed for several photographic portraits during this period, and in one of them he posed next to a Western-made repeating rifle that was one of his prized possessions. Partially, it was because Yoshinobu had a good working relationship with Western diplomats in Yokohama, something we'll talk about in a bit. And finally, Yoshinobu seems not to have believed the foreigners could be expelled at all. Several Shishi bands had already tried to expel the Westerners at Sword Point, and their dismal results seem to indicate the remote likelihood of such an approach succeeding. Yokohama, as one of the opened treaty ports and the closest one to Edo itself, had become the home of the official Western diplomatic presences in Japan, and as a result, it was a target of attack for Shishi radicals. So, for example, in 1860, the Japanese translator of the British Consul General Sir Rutherford Alcock was assassinated outside the gates of the British legation. The next year, the legation itself was attacked in the night by Shishi hoping to kill the British consul, and thus send a message to the hated Westerners. Instead, this night attack was a total failure. The Shishi managed to get into the compound, but were eventually detected by British marines guarding the building. Only three British nationals were wounded. One of them, a British adventurer named Lawrence Oliphant, fought off his attacker by repeatedly beating the man with a bullwhip. In the end, two of the assailants were killed trying to escape, one was captured and executed by the Tokugawa, and a further five were cornered and committed suicide to avoid capture. One year later, there was another attack on the consulate, this one resulting in two deaths before the British were able to raise the alarm and land additional marines to defend the area. Clearly, Trying to chase these people out at Sword Point was not going to work. Even raids with the advantage of surprise were failing to seriously do any damage to the Western presence. 
added to the impossibility of trying to expel the foreigners with violence, was the fact that Tokugawa Yoshinobu had a good working relationship with them. While he disliked the unequal treaties and fought against their implementation wherever he could, constantly trying to delay the opening of more ports, for example, Yoshinobu was cognizant of the importance of not antagonizing the Westerners too much. After the second attack, he offered Bakufu resources to try and fortify the area around the foreign embassies, and actively hunted Shishi groups who attacked foreigners. He also worked to expand trade in industrial and military technology with the West, and in particular he bought a whole bunch of foreign-made rifles, artillery, and ships in order to arm and equip the nucleus of a national military. Yoshinobu's long-term goal seems to have been a pretty wise one, to try and rally a Tokugawa military loyal directly to the central government, rather than relying on individual daimyo to provide military service in the traditional feudalistic manner. A force loyal to the Tokugawa directly, equipped with modern weapons, could ensure the dominance of the Tokugawa family going forward. In particular, Tokugawa Yoshinobu developed a strong working relationship with the French, who, under the reign of Emperor Louis Napoleon III, were engaged in a worldwide bid to reassert French power and prestige. For all of this to make sense, we've got to backtrack a little bit and deal with some European power politics. As you might remember from your high school history classes, in 1815, the Empire of Napoleon came crashing down, and the French monarchy was restored. However, by 1848, the monarchy had once again pushed the French people too far, and was overthrown for the second and final time. In its wake, a second French Republic was established. However, the Republic proved unstable and unpopular, and thus history repeated itself one more time. It was overthrown by one of its leading politicians, Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, nephew of the original Napoleon. In 1851, Louis Napoleon led a coup against the Republic, and the following year had himself proclaimed Emperor of France and ruler of a second Napoleonic Empire, under the name Napoleon III. Napoleon III built his platform on reasserting French power and prestige worldwide, and backed a variety of projects aimed squarely at re-establishing France as a worldwide power, and at taking France's traditional rival, the British, down a few pegs. These projects spanned the globe, from the creation of the Suez Canal in Egypt, to Napoleon's abortive attempt to install a client regime in Mexico, to the establishment of a French sphere of influence in what's called Cochin China, southern Vietnam and Cambodia. In East Asia, Napoleon III looked to Japan as a friendly client state, and as a useful counterweight to growing British influence in China. For Tokugawa Yoshinobu, meanwhile, France provided a good source of weapons and training. In the 1860s, the German Empire was not yet established, and France, especially France under a new Napoleon, was considered the preeminent land power in Europe. French military training and French arms could ensure that the Tokugawa army was organized and equipped by the best fighting force, or at least perceived best fighting force, on earth. While the British undeniably had a better navy, the French navy was no slouch too, so at least the French could help the Tokugawa get a decent-sized naval force off the ground. 
So Yoshinobu developed a close working relationship with the two French consuls in Yokohama, whose names I am about to butcher, and I apologize in advance to the people of France, Gustave de Belcourt and Leon Rocher. In cooperation with the two men, Yoshinobu began plans to build a French-style arms manufactory and an army academy outside Edo. The army academy was scheduled to take its first class of recruits in 1866. So that was Yoshinobu's foreign policy, careful conciliation towards foreigners with an eye towards buying time for military modernization. In many ways, this was the same foreign policy followed by previous Tokugawa rulers, from Abe Masahiro to Hota Masayoshi to Inaosuke. What about domestically, though? What was Yoshinobu trying to accomplish within Japan itself? Well, in this respect, Yoshinobu did insist on a pretty radical departure from previous policy. Remember, Inaosuke's whole approach to government had been to try and freeze out the imperial court and anybody else not directly involved in the bakufu from decision-making. He'd imprisoned Tozama and Shimpan Daimyo, who had been outspoken in their views on politics, and even went after members of the courtly aristocracy in Kyoto, who had been poisoning the emperor with their evil ideas about the emperor weighing in on contemporary issues. Yoshinobu, by contrast, tried to build a closer working relationship with the imperial court and the Tozama daimyo. He lifted all the bans on court officials like Sanjo Sanitomi and Iwakura Tomomi, who had been forced to flee Kyoto to avoid arrest and execution, and instead tried to forge a closer alliance between the court and the Tokugawa government. Yoshinobu also took a pretty momentous step in deciding to relax the obligation of Sankin Kotai, or alternate attendance, the requirement that daimyo alternate their time between their home provinces and the capital at Edo. Remember, this alternate attendance system had served as an elaborate hostage system, as well as a drain on the financial resources of the domains, designed to make them easier to control. Yoshinobu abandoned it as uneconomical at a time when the various lords of Japan had to concentrate their wealth not on blinging out their houses in Edo, but on self-strengthening. The goal of this new, more conciliatory policy was to try and create an alignment of political vision between the Tokugawa, the imperial court, and the daimyo to assure that in the future, all three groups remained united in service to a common goal of Japanese national strength and independence. At the same time, the bakufu and the domains would develop a more equal relationship that would remove some of the friction between them and enable them to cooperate more efficiently with the West. Proponents of this idea of a closer working relationship between these various centers of power referred to their ideas as kobugatai, the union of the imperial court and the bakufu into a single ruling group with shared interests that would be able to see Japan through its most difficult times. This union of court and bakufu was established by a physical link between the two houses. Yoshinobu, via an intermediary, floated the idea of a marriage between the imperial court and the Tokugawa to create a formal marriage alliance between the emperor and the shogun that would be the bedrock of this new era of political cooperation. After a few false starts and some careful negotiations, 
the two sides eventually settled on a marriage between the reigning shogun, Tokugawa Iemochi, and the sister of Emperor Komei, named Kazunomiya. Kazunomiya, awkwardly enough, was already promised to another man, the head of a distant branch of the imperial family, actually, because royal inbreeding is not just an idea exclusive to Europe. So, Kazunomiya fought hard against a marriage to the boorish Tokugawa, which would require her to leave the cultured city of Kyoto and move to that déclassé and plebeian city of Edo, and initially her brother, the emperor, supported her wishes. However, over time, Emperor Komei was convinced of the wisdom of the marriage, as it became clearer and clearer just how badly Tokugawa Yoshinobu wanted it. Yoshinobu made some pretty generous offers in exchange for the marriage, including one which ultimately convinced the old anti-Harris Treaty faction of people at court of the utility of the arrangement. Yoshinobu promised that if Kazunomiya married the shogun, he would arrange for the Harris Treaty with the hated Americans to be annulled and for Japan to return to isolation from the West. The anti-Harris Treaty faction so recently suppressed by Inousuke jumped on this offer that seemed to give them everything they wanted. Unbeknownst to them, Yoshinobu had no intention of ever keeping his promise. He was deliberately vague, for example, about when all this was going to happen, and so most of the court supported the match. If any of the people involved in trying to arrange the marriage suspected Tokugawa Yoshinobu of duplicity in his promises to expel the foreigner, it did not seem to slow things down. Emperor Komei was convinced that backing the marriage was worth it even at the cost of upsetting his sister, and Kazunomiya was called before her brother and informed that if she did not accept the marriage, then he would abdicate the imperial throne. Unwilling to accept responsibility for her brother stepping down from his imperial position, Kazunomiya consented to the marriage. In 1862, she was escorted with great fanfare from Kyoto to Edo for the marriage ceremony. Because of security concerns that Shishi groups might try to liberate the imperial princess on her road to Edo, the procession was guarded by a huge number of samurai drawn from a variety of different domains. However, the security concerns proved unfounded as the princess arrived in Edo without incident. Kazunomiya's marriage was rocky from the get-go. As a member of the imperial family, technically speaking, she outranked her own husband in the complex and ceremonially important, if practically irrelevant, hierarchy of the imperial court. This made Shogun Iemochi's own supporters dislike her from the beginning. Kazunomiya's own behavior seemed to drive home her sense of cultural superiority. She insisted on continuing to live by the elaborate cultural and religious rituals of the imperial court in Kyoto, rather than adopting the customs of Edo, which was interpreted again by many of Iemochi's supporters as an insult against the shogun, though more likely it was simply just a lonely girl, all of 16 at the time of her marriage, expressing her longing for the place she grew up. Either way, though, the marriage between Kazunomiya and shogun Iemochi proved to be less of an immediate success than Yoshinobu might have hoped for. Sure, it bound the court more closely than ever to the Bakufu, but the imbalance in courtly rank between Kazunomiya and Iemochi was drawing more attention than ever to the idea that the imperial family outranked the shogunal one. 
At the same time, Imperial demands for expulsion of the foreigners could be deflected for a time, but eventually that would stop working. Eventually, the Emperor would not let Yoshinobu stall anymore. Eventually, he'd demand that Yoshinobu keep his promise to annul the treaty with the Americans and expel the foreigner. When that time came, Yoshinobu's government had to be strong enough to stand on its own, and it was not at all clear that it would be. Worst of all, Kazunomiya and Iemochi, for some reason, no one really knows, proved incapable of having a child. Perhaps one party or the other, or both, were not interested in consummating the relationship, or perhaps Iemochi's chronically poor health affected his fertility, but either way, the couple proved incapable of producing a child, who, having the blood of both Tokugawa Ieyasu and the imperial family, could really bind the two together. The policy of closer union between the court and Bakufu then provided a short-term success, but was a long-term blunder. In the short term, Yoshinobu was able to use the prestige of the imperial court to shore up the position of the Tokugawa, which was visibly weakened in the wake of the death of Inousuke. In the long term, however, Yoshinobu lended more public visibility and credibility to the political role of the imperial court, and by making concessions about the expulsion of foreigners even in the most vague and roundabout of ways, Yoshinobu also lent the court a degree of influence over policy it had never before possessed. So what about the rest of the country outside Kyoto? Well, on the surface, Yoshinobu enjoyed far more political stability in his role as shogunal puppet master than any of his predecessors. In particular, Yoshinobu was able to secure one big defection from the group of daimyo that had previously opposed Tokugawa policy. Under the reign of its old daimyo, Shimazu Nariakira, Satsuma domain in Kyushu had been a constant source of trouble for the Bakufu. Nariakira had landed pretty firmly in the camp of Tozama and Shimpan daimyo, who fought against any kind of treaty with the West, and demanded a devolution of power to the daimyo level. Nariakira, however, was dead, and no longer a threat to the Bakufu. Instead, his young nephew, Shimazu Tadayoshi, ruled as daimyo, though most policy decisions came from the young daimyo's father, the old daimyo's brother, Shimazu Hisamitsu. Hisamitsu was far more cautious in his approach to politics, and totally supported the notion of an alliance between the imperial court, the Tokugawa family, and major families of daimyo like the Shimazu. His motives were twofold. First, the alliance between the court and the Bakufu would simultaneously raise the public stature of the imperial court and restrict the power of the Bakufu, a favorable outcome for Satsuma. Second, Satsuma's family connections to the imperial court, remember, many Shimazu family members were tied by marriage to the aristocracy in Kyoto, meant that Satsuma domain could act as an intermediary and power broker between the court and the Bakufu, increasing its own political influence. Thus, the large coalition of Tozama and Shimpan Daimyo, which had so troubled Hotamasa Yoshi and Inousuke, fell apart. Shimazu, along with a good chunk of the Shimpan Tokugawa relatives, began actively cooperating with the Bakufu instead of opposing its policies, and the remaining daimyo opposed to the Bakufu recognized the weakness of their new positions 
and generally kept their collective heads down. That did not mean, however, that all was well with the House of Tokugawa. Organized, daimyo-level opposition to Tokugawa policy might have died out, at least temporarily, but there was now a new problem, the issue of the shishi. As a quick refresher from last week, the shishi were semi-organized bands of younger samurai, often from lower social classes, who had been radicalized after the death of Inosuke and now supported a combination of pro-imperial, anti-shogunate, and anti-foreigner policies. These bands were not strong enough to launch an armed insurrection in the streets. They lacked the numbers and the coordination to throw up the barricades all revolutionary France and seize power by force, but they had an impact well in excess of their actual strength. I debated for a long time, particularly in light of the events of last week, whether or not I wanted to use the word terrorist to describe the shishi because of just how loaded it is now. But the more I think about it, the more I think there's really no way around it. If terrorism is the use of violence to advance a political agenda, then the shishi were, by any reasonable metric, terrorists. They were becoming particularly problematic in Kyoto itself, where shishi had begun to gather and terrorize supporters of the bakufu, as well as those associated with Western ideas and technology. Shishi violence took a variety of forms, from straight-up assassination, usually in broad daylight, the better to ensure that word of the deed spread, to campaigns of intimidation, or arson, or property destruction, or all three, against court nobles who supported Tokugawa imperial court unity, or who favored a closer working relationship with Edo. The forces already stationed in Kyoto were utterly inadequate to the task of ending this violence. The small Tokugawa garrison in the city was unable to police the city by itself. There were other domains with a presence in the city. Specific domains were honored with a charge of defending a specific part of the city or the imperial palace, as part of a thousand-year-old tradition where the samurai clans shared responsibility for defending the emperor's person. However, there was no unity of command. Each domain's forces in Kyoto operated independently, which made it hard for them to coordinate, and easy for the shishi to circumvent them. So, Tokugawa Yoshinobu took an important step in the assertion of Tokugawa authority over Kyoto. Previously, the supreme Tokugawa official in Kyoto held the title of Shoshidai, which you can think of as a type of ambassador. This person was basically the ambassador from Edo to Kyoto, charged with relaying news from the shogun to the emperor, and taking the emperor's replies back to the shogun. In 1862, however, Yoshinobu and other Bakufu leaders got together and decided to establish a new office, Protector of Kyoto, a post which essentially made whoever held it military governor of the city, empowered to take broad police action and command any resources felt necessary to end the chaos. To hold this incredibly sensitive role, the Bakufu selected the 27-year-old daimyo of Aizu Domain, Matsudaira Katamori. Matsudaira Katamori was a Shimpan daimyo, a distant relative of both the shogun Iemochi and Tokugawa Yoshinobu. Fiercely loyal to the Tokugawa family, he was considered to be the best choice to bring things under control, 
while faithfully representing the interests of his relatives. Once in Kyoto, Matsudaira had to deal with a potentially explosive situation almost immediately. Early in 1863, Shogun Tokugawa Iemochi, over the advice of his counselors, and possibly at the suggestion of his new imperial wife, though this has not been proven, agreed to go to Kyoto in person to meet with the emperor. The goal of this conference was supposed to be to discuss plans for the expulsion of the foreigners from Japan. Shogun Iemochi himself, as well as supporters of the visit, framed it as allowing for closer coordination between the emperor and the shogun, promoting the shared goals of unity and national defense. Detractors, however, saw the meeting as doing just opposite. It undermined the prestige of the shogun and threatened the safety of the state. Remember, no shogun had personally visited Kyoto since Tokugawa Iemitsu more than 200 years earlier. If the shogun came personally to call on the emperor and was forced to bow and scrape before the imperial throne, all that would do would be to highlight the shogun's nominal submission to the emperor and further undermine the legitimacy of the shogunate. Critics of the visit charged that Iemochi was undermining the very principles of unity between the court and the bakufu. The whole idea had been to shore up the position of the Tokugawa family by relying on the prestige of the imperial court. Now Iemochi was behaving so slavishly to the court that he was undermining his own position regardless. Of course, none of his critics blamed the shogun directly. Regardless of their opinions, directly critiquing the shogun was an invitation to a death sentence. Instead, they targeted his wife, Princess Kazunomiya, who was accused of poisoning the mind of her husband and acting against his interests. However, to be honest, we don't know if she was behind the visit or not. She just had the bad luck of being a convenient target for political scapegoating. Iemochi would not be swayed and continued to plan for the visit. This put the Bakufu in general and the new protector of Kyoto, Matsudaira Katamori in particular, in a tricky spot. Kyoto had to be brought under control before the shogun arrived. Otherwise, he would just be too good of a target. Every shishi worth his reputation would band together for a shot to bring down the shogun himself. Matsudaira needed a way to bring Kyoto to heel and quickly. That meant he needed to rapidly raise a force of armed police answerable directly and only to him. We'll talk about his solution and the other tumultuous events of 1863 next week. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Bradley Nixon for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for The Fall of the Samurai, Part 9.